So um, I want to um, bring us out of this series on global missions into a new series where we're going to be talking about 1 Corinthians. Now we're going to split 1 Corinthians into a number of different series. So um, it'll split up a little bit, but, but the point is that 1 Corinthians is the product of a missionary. There was a moment in which there was no church in the city of Corinth in Greece to send any letters to. And there was a time when a man named Paul, who Christ had chosen to bring the gospel to southern Europe, made a decision to take a risk, though he had plenty to be afraid of, and to move out in gospel courage to go to a place that was not very, not a very good prospect for the gospel. Because he believed he had to do it. He believed he had to take a shot. He had to give it a try, and he believed that God wanted him there, and he just had to go and see what God was going to do. Um, it's not too big of a stretch for people to know that the Bible talks quite a bit about fear. If you just do a word search and you type in fear and press enter in the New International Version, more than 250 verses talk about fear, reference fear. Um, it's, it's a major theme, and here's the problem. There are a lot of us who don't connect with that theme very deeply because we think of fear as something that happens to weak people. Um, that's definitely how I have felt the majority of my life, and since I'm not a weak person, I, I don't struggle with fear, of course, and therefore that whole part of the Bible is for the other part of the human race, the people who are weak and silly and so on, who are afraid of things, and I should take care of people like that probably is sort of the world that I mentally live in. But when I was an undergrad, one of the things I studied was political philosophy, and we had to read um, Thomas Hobbes. And I don't know if you've ever read anything he's written, but his essential, his, essentially his main idea is that the one thing that governs all of humanity is fear, right? Quote, it pervades the state of nature of whose many miseries— oh, sorry, sorry, but, of whose— Many ministries, the worst of all is continual fear and the danger of violent death. Quote, the origin of all great and lasting societies consists not in the mutual goodwill of men have towards one another, but in their mutual fear uh, that they have of each other. See the point? He's, he's saying the whole reason we have societies is not because we have goodwill towards one another and we want to live with each other. That's not the reason we have societies. The reason we have societies is because we're all mutually terrified of each other and what we will do to each other, and therefore we get together and create governments so that we cannot be constantly afraid, right? Um, and, and if you go on to study economics, the, the, the most dominant school in the United States at this time is connected with a guy named John Maynard Keynes. And in his most famous book, General Theory of Employment, Interest, and Money, he talks about one of the reasons why his theory works the way it does is because human beings are affected by animal spirits, meaning fear. We don't act rationally, we act scared. And therefore, we have to affect people's psychology really more than the most rational economic thing because people don't act like rational animals. They act like scared ones. Now, think about this. In one sense, we go, you know, yeah, fear. That's for weak people. And then we take our hat and our umbrella and we go down to the university and we sit down and we assume that the real governing emotion of humanity is fear. And all of our public policies— and everything that we've done governmentally for multiple years agrees with that. And yet, we can walk around and say, you know, the Bible just talks about fear, 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 fear. The Bible is so quaint and sentimental. Assumes everybody's afraid of everything. Well, the Bible turns out it's right. 
Turns out that if you look at what we do, not just what we think about ourselves, oh, I'm not afraid of stuff, I'm not ruled by fear. If you look at what we do, we live under the impression that everybody else besides me is governed by fear. Therefore, we need these laws and these economic policies. But when you look at me, I don't really need that stuff, and so the Bible's a little quaint. No, it turns out we can see the truth in other people that we can't see in ourselves. We are terrified. We call it lots of different things, but fear really is one of the great governing impulses of human beings. And therefore, in our culture, a huge market has grown up selling a proposed solution to that great difficulty, and that is the sale of confidence. Right? You're afraid? And you don't know if you can accomplish what you need to accomplish, but let me just tell you that you're fantastic and you're worth it. And if you act like you're good enough, people will think you're good enough and you'll be good enough. Right? And so you get these posters of people raising their hands in strange deserts and women standing on fences holding out their arms. But that's not how life happens, is it? Right? And confidence can be a little bit silly. I mean, it wants to be sold as the solution to all of these things, but what it ends up looking like is more like that. <laughs> because, because, because confidence is just a new age way of saying religion. It's a religion. Why? Because what does confidence produce? Confidence produces the same thing religion produces, self-righteousness and fear. Think about it. If you're Mr. Confident and you work yourself up psychologically into a place where you're really confident, what does that mean? You're probably either more confident than logic and reason dictates, i.e. you're arrogant, or you know that you're not really that great. You're puffing yourself up like a turkey with big feathers, but you know there's no muscle behind it, and you're really going to be terrified because you can't really convince yourself that you're all that fantastic. And so the modern self-help, let's all be confident and get our hair dyed frequently movement thing that sells millions and millions of dollars every year is, is religion, which everybody says they don't want. Because it's so ugly, because it's always either self-righteous or terrified or both at the same time pretending it's neither. And that kind of hypocrisy isn't attractive and that kind of uselessness isn't attractive. And therefore, I think it's important for us to recognize that God is not primarily interested in helping us be confident. God is primarily interested in helping us be courageous. God wants us to have courage, not confidence. Now, obviously you can use confidence to lay over both categories, right? So, but just hang with the distinction here. Confidence is essentially the belief that you have within you what it takes to win. And therefore, you can engage in whatever conflict, whatever thing you're trying to accomplish, because you can win. Courage is the belief that if you just do your duty, you cannot fail. You may not succeed in accomplishing the outcome that you want, but if you know who you are, and you know what you're here to do, and you know that what you're about to attempt is the just, right, good, true, and beautiful, and you know that you're within the will of God, and you know this is what, that even if you fail, you haven't failed. And therefore, you can be self-forgetful. 
And you don't, you're not constantly in your own head wondering how you look to others. You could just do it. Living or dying, failing or succeeding, it doesn't matter anymore because you're not doing it out of confidence and your confidence isn't shaking as to whether or not you're presently succeeding or whether you've accomplished the proper percentage of distance. You're just doing what you're made to do. You have courage. And I want to tell you that I'm going to get to the risk-taking I believe God wants us to have, but we have to know that the solution to fear and the thing that will drive us through and into and out of the risks we are meant to take is not confidence. Confidence will betray you and leave you on the battlefield. But courage cannot. Now, I'm not arguing that seeking security and safety safety isn't right. There are a lot of ways in which reason, wisdom, and scripture dictate we should seek security and safety, okay? It is wise to save some money. It is wise to make dependable friends. It is wise to marry somebody that you know you'll be able to count on for their character rather than their physique. It is wise to ensure certain things. It is wise to secure permanent shelter for yourself, okay? It is wise for people like me who don't pay attention all the time to drive cars and not ride motorcycles. That's not true for everybody, but when you see a butterfly and you go like this, then you may not be the person for to not be encased in steel. That's all. And then that's wise. It's wise to maximize your qualifications at work so that you're necessary. It's wise to have a written contract before engaging in business. It's wise to stay away from people you can't trust. It's wise to be careful before you get into business people, and it's wise to stay away from people who don't have good emotional boundaries. That's all wise, and that's all seeking safety and seeking security, and that's all good, and that's all biblical. And so Jesus, I do not believe biblically, is trying to create a bunch of crazy risk seekers who just do everything as stupidly as possible so that we can get ourselves hurt as much as possible so that we can feel like we're really alive. I don't think Jesus wants to create human beings that are generating drama for drama's sake. But that's what a lot of our friends who do not have a deeper courageous purpose given to them and a mission in the world have to do because if you do not have a greater purpose inside of you, you will be tempted to simply create drama in your life so that your life is interesting. And even if it's very detrimental to your long-term prospects, you will still be tempted to create drama. When I preached that to the junior high girls, they went, yeah, yeah. But although it is wise in lots of ways, biblically speaking, to be, to seek security and safety in certain ways, we need to remember that without risk takers, everything good dies and nothing great ever happens. Safety can keep the world out, but it can't change the world. I mean, just think about the the basic things you enjoy in your life. I mean, almost everything that you enjoy was somebody's cockamamie crazy idea that they had to risk to bring to market. I mean, I mean, think about this. In the 1980s, they couldn't even make something that looked like a smartphone for Star Trek that was supposed to be happening in the 23rd century. 
Now, Lisa gets up and goes, text to blah, 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 blah with your smartphone and we'll see who's going to go to what service. Hmm. And it's only the 21st century. Be- because somebody believed enough in science and technology and manufacturing capabilities that if they put a lot of money into this and they worked these technologies and worked these technologies, they would come up with this thing that we could be persuaded to buy because it would be awesome. And that's happened. But it was somebody's nutty idea at some point. Too soon. Right? And that's been true. All, I mean, the first guy who like built a plow in like 1124. Okay, I know we use slaves to dig up every field all over Europe. What if we came up with this loop that went on a horse that pulled this thing behind it? that turned over eight inches of dirt rather than three and multiplied by five times the amount of food Europe could produce? What if we did that? People are probably like, but slaves are cheap. But it transformed European society and led to the Renaissance and the Reformation because people had time to read and write and make printing presses and all kinds of stuff came from the fact that Europe overnight no longer lived by subsistence. Because some guy in the dark ages innovated. Um, One of the things that, and this is, okay, this has been difficult for me over my life. I don't know about you, but I grew up in a house. My mom was an immigrant from Rome, and both my parents were tenured public school teachers, okay? So it was not a very risk-embracing household. It was a wise security household, okay? My mom sent me off to college so that I could become a teacher, so that I could get permanently certified, so I could get a public school teaching job, so that I could get tenure, and so I would have a good job and good health insurance the rest of my life, okay? When I told her I wanted to go to seminary and be a pastor, she was just like, really? What a terrible idea. Um, but you know, like any teenager, I still took some risks. Nothing like my peers, but you know, I took some risks. And, but when I, when Jesus started to get a hold of me in college, I began to look at, this whole idea of risk-taking got brought up again. Because what I found was, is that I was a very calculating and particular kind of person, and I didn't do stupid stuff. Because I wasn't going to pay the price for it. I mean, my prayer in college, which is a little bit self-interested, I mean, this, I pray this every day during my devotionals. God, please help me not learn everything about life the hard way. And I did that. I did that. I I read a chapter of Proverbs every day in addition to the rest of the Bible reading that I did. I journaled about the wisdom that came out of that. How could I apply it to my life? And I thought of myself as very godly because I did that. But a whole lot of that was my desire for security and safety and my ability to avert pain and maximize comfort. And to this day, comfort is one of my major idols. And one of the things that I realized about my sophomore year in college was that um, even though I played sports at a relatively high level, even though um, I, I was part of two major extreme sports, whitewater kayaking and sport climbing, and a bunch of other things, I thought of myself as a risk taker. I thought of myself as like a dangerous dude. Like I do stuff that's cool and like chicks love it. Like I, I mean, that's how I, that was my self-identity. But what I, here's what I realized. I realized that all of the risk taking that I did was based on confidence. And the risk-taking that the mission of God was inviting me to and demanding of me that required courage, I was averse to. So by the time I was 20 years old, no problem talking to a girl. 
No, I could, t- I could walk any girl, talk, no problem. I could take the hardest class on campus. I'd go take classes with the graduate students. I got in debates on campus with graduate students that were public while I was like a junior. No problem. Because I was confident in all those areas. But when it came to courage to really share the gospel freely and naturally with other people, to invest my money in the mission of God throughout the world, to, to do the kinds of things that required trusting that Jesus was actually risen— that God's purposes were right, that I had to live into them whether I succeeded or failed, and that it was my calling and my role in my identity to do that. Those things, I did some of them, but it wasn't nearly as natural as the things I did with confidence. And, and I began to realize, not only was I not much of a risk taker, but I was exactly the wrong kind of risk taker. Even though I thought of myself as this liberated, dangerous, tough, risk-taking person. And what I realized was, not only was I the wrong kind of risk-taker, I began to realize that I had the wrong kind of fear. I thought of myself as somebody without fear, but there is no such thing as a human without fear. You can't be the human who doesn't have fear. You can only pick the kind of fear that is going to rule you. Jesus said it this way in Luke 12, 4 to 7. He said, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you who you should fear. Fear him who, after killing the body, has the power to throw you into hell. That's God, right? And then he says this, Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now think about this. That's mid-paragraph. He goes on, right? That's pretty hard, right? Listen, you want to think about who you— Don't fear them. They can only kill you. You fear the one who can kill you and throw you into hell. That's much more reasonable, right? Now that, but that's a hard teaching, right? Now listen to what Jesus says. What he says right after that, he says this. He says, listen, listen. Aren't five sparrows sold— For two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are numbered. Do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Now there is a Bible contradiction to take home and put on the atheist website. Right? I mean, Jesus in two sentences says, Be afraid. Don't be afraid. It's right there. Right? But you see what he means. He's saying, listen, you should fear God. You should have a sense of soberness that comes from the fact that the people who can kill you are not your biggest concern. That there is one who reigns sovereign over all things and who cares and is interested in all things and has called you to believe in and follow him and know him. But listen, the fear of that one drives out all fear. When you are sobered by and centered in and your heart is filled with a a clarity that comes from there is one who gets your attention. There is one who determines your paths. There is one who tells you what is the good, the true, and the beautiful. There is one who points you in the direction that you should go in. Everything else can't get its hooks into you. Because, frankly— They can't play ball on the level God can. They can do all kinds of stuff, and you can feel a little afraid, but they can't get a hold of you 
Because there's one that you started off fearing, but now you recognize that when you've come into a relationship with him, he is also the one that numbers the very hairs on your head. And he who in his providence does not forget part of a group of birds purchased for pennies, that that is the one that holds you as much more valuable. Therefore, you don't have to be afraid. Every human being will be motivated and their thinking and their actions will be structured by fear. But there is one fear that is right. There is one being who deserves an absolute soberness in your perspective towards him. And there is a beauty to that fear in that it, it is put towards one who also pours out love. And who in that love and in his providence in protecting you ultimately casts out all other fears that are constantly clamoring to take you. And that's what I see in every page when I read about the Apostle Paul. Every page. And this is the passage where he goes to the city of Corinth. And listen, here's what you need to know about this passage. Uh, in about the middle of chapter 16, he's in Turkey and he has this dream. There's this guy that says, hey, come to Greece and help us. We need to hear the gospel. And he takes that as a vision from God. And he tells the boys, he's like, guys, we're going to Greece. And they're like, okay. And so they go to this place called Philippi, which is a major city. And he preaches to some people, and some people believe. But then there's this riot, and they strip him and this guy Silas naked in the streets and beat them half to death. And they get thrown in jail, and God miraculously delivers them, but they have to leave to the next city. Not much gets to really happen there. They're not there very long. They go on to this place called Thessalonica. They try to do the same thing, and this citywide riot breaks out, endangering their lives, endangering the lives of everybody that they spoke to. And they get them, and they move them on to this new city, Berea. And in Berea, there's, there's some really good prospects. There's some Bible-studying people there. And he's preaching the gospel to them, and he's starting to make some headway. But then some of these people from Thessalonica come over there and create a whole other riot. So they send Paul to the next state— to the city of Athens. And you think, Athens, that is the perfect place for the gospel to take hold. And you can just imagine, Paul's like, this must be where God wants me to build the flagship church for this region, right? I mean, you can just imagine, it's the city of philosophy. It's the city of history. It's the city of democracy. And so he goes in, and mostly he just gets patronized. They make fun of him on the street. They bring him into this place, other philosophers. He speaks to them, and they laugh at him. And a few people believe. And then he leaves, and he goes to the city of Corinth. Now listen, what you need to know about Corinth is <laughs> Corinth was not a good prospect for the Christian religion, okay? Like many of you were not good prospects for the Christian faith. Um, I mean, it was—the city was only seven years old because it was totally destroyed a hundred years previous by a Roman legion because they were a bunch of idiots, okay? And, and then they, he, they rebuilt the city. And because it was a port that everybody who wanted to get from the entire east, anywhere from the east, if you wanted to get your goods to Rome to sell them, you had to go through Corinth. For at least six months out of the year, that was just a fact. And so this place— had money and people and languages and stuff coming in from the entire world. And it was known to be the most decadent, the most promiscuous, the most do-whatever-the-heck-you-want place in the entire world. In fact, there was actually a saying called to Corinthianize, which meant basically to fornicate or to do whatever the heck you wanted to. It was—I mean, they were actually—it was like—it was actually the city that they used to talk about immorality. You just name the city. It was that, it was that bad. And Paul shows up there. 
And this is what it says happened. After this, meaning after he spoke to this group in Athens, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, that's in Turkey, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia— Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook off his clothes in protest against them. Your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. And one night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision first one since he had left Turkey. Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack or harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God, so that Corinth became the flagship church of the region, the place where people could strike out to Rome and move on from there. It was the, the place, he stayed there the longest other than any other place other than Ephesus. And it was the worst, the worst possible prospect. But you know, an immoral port city is still a port city. And God can use that place to reach a hundred different ports in that region and to send missionaries everywhere. And so he provided work for Paul Somebody from Turkey where he had been, who had moved to Rome, who did the exact same job Paul did, moved back exactly the same time to Corinth to set up a business and to give Paul work to do so he could sustain himself because his buddies were still in Macedonia. He didn't have any money. So he had work to sustain himself while he preached, right? And then God provided people who actually believed. And then he provided safety. So for a year and a half, he could develop and develop and develop these people. But going there, I mean, can you imagine going there? You've been beaten half to death publicly, naked, thrown into a prison without your wounds, being dealt totally unjust under the laws. He was a Roman citizen. You go to Thessalonica, there's this huge uproar. Nothing has caught on. Your team has been split up. You go to Athens, which you think that's got to be a great place. You speak in front of an influential group of people. Nothing clicks. And then you go to the crap hole of the entire continent— And God just does something among those people. He just causes it to be fruitful and and to transform people's lives. And and because, listen, because Paul took a shot. And it took him like five shots before this one hit. And even the ones that missed in Philippi and Thessalonica, when Silas and Timothy, churches got planted there. Stuff happened, but not, not like he wanted. But it was this place where he, he didn't give up. He believed, no, I, gotta, I need to go out in the streets. I need to preach there too. And he took the risk, and he took the shot, and it wasn't motivated by confidence. If Paul had been a confidence guy, I mean, how far would he have gotten? How far can you get on confidence, Really? But thank God that's not what he was working on. He had the fear that drove out all fears. Now, part of the reason why I'm talking about this is because um, I believe that over the last year or so, 
or two years, this has been the main thing God has been working on in me. That um, I, I believe that what God is doing in me is essentially trying to tell me that I cannot lead and be a security maven. You can't, you can't do that. You have to take risks. And it was, it, it was a risk just to come here. You know, when we made the decision to move to Madison, it, that was, I mean, it was not as bad a risk as it actually was, but it looked like a terrible risk for us. And, um, yeah. And so we came here, and um, we've just seen— um, I've seen these things come up in what I was trying to lead where they, they were things I was convicted was important, but they had a lot of risk tied up with them. They had a lot of risk tied up with them. Um, first one was um, last June, we, I decided to try to move forward with having an internship program. And interns are a risk because you just, you never know exactly what you're going to get. You're ne- you, they can be totally useless. The program's expensive. The one we were bringing in was going to live in my house, so I was going to lose a lot. We were going to lose privacy. Um, it was going to cost us money. We didn't know how much it would cost us to have somebody living in our house like that. And, um, and it was not a sure thing by any stretch of the imagination. But I had a 10-year conviction that um, God was doing something amazing in younger adults. And that some churches were going to have to say, you can come here and train and try stuff. Otherwise, they were going to just become anti-institutional. I don't want to be part of the local church. So if the local church doesn't want me, I don't want it. And they were going to go huff off and, you know, save the world through, I don't know what. I, but they would not— be able to connect the passion God was putting in them with the local church. And therefore, they would never have any staying power. And somebody was going to have to say, and so I had this background of nobody doing that for me. Nobody saying, hey, can we, let me make space for you. And I, I pledged when I was in seminary, I was, I was not going to be that pastor. I was going to be the opposite of that. And so we invited Adam— since then, we've invited some others to come on. We've invited some others for this next year that are right in this room right now, and we've asked them all to take a risk. We've said, yeah, you just got a, a perfectly good bachelor's degree from a perfectly good institution, and you could go out and you could find yourself a really good job, but I know you have a passion for the church. I know you want to, to be part of what God does through the local church. Why don't you ask some people that don't know you to give you money so that you can do this for a year. And, the, and they say, oh, okay. <laughs> and it's going to take more of my time. It takes some of our resources. It is a risky proposition. But I don't know if you've noticed over the last 12 months or so, starting with Ashley Vale, and then when Lisa came on, and then Adam came, and some of these others, we have— quickly really become a truly intergenerational church again. There is, there is no missing generation anymore, really. And I, and I, I don't want to worship that generation, but I want them to be here. I want us all to be here. And that's happening. And so I think that risk was worth it. Right? I, a few months— A few— A few months ago, um, when we as a staff talked about— betting the ship on small groups. 
in a church where I was told in no uncertain terms, small groups had started and failed five, six, seven, eight times. That we were the small group um, vaccinated church. Um, we as a staff got together and we talked with the elders and we talked and we said, listen, unless there is a place where people intentionally have their lives weaved together, they talk about what they've learned in the context of application, where there's this bias to do something, and where they actually are close enough to other people where they hear about their real problems and they feel convicted that I can help this person, where people care for each other in that context. The spiritual growth is going to flatten, and we might grow broadly, but we will not grow in sufficient depth to transform for our lives to be transformed, for this community to be transformed, to have any impact on our neighbors. And so we just felt a conviction that, yes, this is definitely going to fail, and yes, we're apparently inoculated from small groups, and yes, getting professional people and soccer moms to put another meeting into their week and to force themselves to care about a new 10 or 15 people is insane. And we are going to bet the farm on it this, that last fall. And we did. And 430 of you signed up to be in small groups, and there's something like 390 that are in small groups right now. And I, I, listen, I'm not saying that—that's not, that's not to our credit. We didn't create that. You decided to join small groups, and God hopefully, I think, is doing a work in us. But, but you've got to take the risk. You've got to take the shot. A few, a few months back, just a couple months after we started Gospel and Life, Tom Flaherty from way the heck the other side of town came to me and said, listen, our school, our Christian school, just like you have a Christian school, our, we have a Christian school, we believe in Christian education, we believe in, 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 Christian, in Christian educators in all areas of education, but we have this Christian school, we believe it's important, and it's not working, and we don't know how to fix it, and if, if somebody doesn't help us, this isn't going to go. Will you help us? When, listen, I he might have paid for my chicken fingers at Friendly's, but I knew he was ruining my life. I knew that. I, I knew that if we said yes, that was going to take over my life. I knew that it was going to take over Diane Cook's life. I knew it was going to affect High Point Christian School. And though we talked that there would be no money involved, that we would just provide people, that's just a fantasy. That's just a fantasy. Because we have to hire more, we had to hire more people over here. We had to pay for different stuff we wouldn't otherwise had to pay for. And ultimately, we're investing. And that's crazy. Yeah, let's just try to turn around a million dollar organization while we're trying to, like, recover as a church. That sounds like a fabulous idea. But, 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 I don't know if you know this, but when this church was gasping on its last breath, City Church just wrote a check and sent it over to us. Just one day, we just got a check from City Church for like 500 bucks. They just wanted to send us a check because they knew things were hard over here. And they just wanted to do that. That didn't really get us out of what we were in. <laughs> but it was love. It was love. And I knew we had in our hands the capacity to try to help them. I still have no idea if it's going to work. There's 175 kids signed up. They're ahead of actually where they were last year. 
There's a lot of hurt feelings. There's a lot of excitement. There's a lot going down. My, my name has been praised and, and hated. Diane has been loved and disliked. We, we have done a lot of work. I've spent hours and hours and hours on this, and I don't know if it's going to succeed. But listen, I don't care. I don't care because I had in my hands the ability to help. I believed in the work of God in those people on the east side. And I believed that I couldn't dare not do it. I believed that God had specifically positioned us with a successful school, with a maximized enrollment, with great teachers and good leaders, and we, we had it. Providence had dictated we were in a position to help. We had to help. And I, listen, I'm, it's not been fun. But I love those people. And it is going to draw us together as a church. And I believe God will ultimately do something else, even if the school doesn't work. But I believe it might work. Why shouldn't God glorify himself this way? I don't know. And then the most recent is going to, us going to two services. Listen, I know that that's a risk. I know it's fun to have a lot of people in the room, right? This is low attendance for us right now. It's one of those ebb and flows, and this is kind of when it's low, and it's kind of nice to look around. There's actually people here, and I know that, that people— are you, I, know what you're, I know you're feeling like, you know, you're going to split us in half. I mean, we're not even really that full, and I mean, it's going to kind of be kind of dead in here, isn't it? And they're all going to go to the first service, and you know, what's going to—and we're going to be two churches, and we're going to go in different directions. There's going to be multiple cultures, and it's not going to be cozy like this, and what's going to happen, and are you going to be able to even do this, and we don't have money for more staff. I mean, we're going to have more stuff to do, and what about the more volunteers it's going to take? I mean, children's ministry— Gonna be any good? What's gonna happen? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I listen, I don't know, but here's what I know. What I know is is that there are certain maximizations of of attendance that make people who are new want to leave. That's what I know. I know that this sanctuary was designed with a lot of seating that isn't ideal. And there are, there's only so many people we can have in here before there's the sense of there's no place for me. Um, people like to sit apart in pews. They don't want to squish together so there's room on the ends and so that family comes in 10 minutes late and everybody is lined up at the end of the pews and there's nowhere for them to go. I know that that's a fact. And listen, we have to keep our eye on the ball. We are not here for ourselves. We are here partly for ourselves. We are here to grow. We are God's flock. God wants to do work in us. It is not all about everybody that's out there, but part of what is happening in us is our care for the people who are out there. Part of what God wants to do in us is our desire to see our neighbors come to know Jesus. And we have to do in here at least what we believe we all should be desiring to do in every relationship among our neighborhoods. And so are we going to lose momentum? I don't know. Are we not going to have enough volunteers? Well, if we, do, we don't volunteer, yeah. Am I going to get burned out? I don't know. I don't know. But I believe that to take the shot at moving forward at this point requires this move. And I think courage dictates it. And so I think we should do it. And that's why we are. Here are the five things I think what we know when we should know it's time to take a risk. 
The first is, when I would rather try and fail than not have tried at all. When the courage that comes from fearing the one who drives out all fear dictates that I must try even if I'm gonna fail, then I should try. And that's what motivated us in the school consolidation. The second is, when my duty or my identity require it. When my duty or my identity require it. So, I see my wife and I drifting apart. I'm a husband. The fact that I, I don't matter whether I want to reach out to her or endure the fights it's going to take to come. I am a husband. Christ has made me a husband. Therefore, it is my duty and my identity to win back my wife. That's it. And vice versa. Same thing for a wayward kid. The, the, the kid, you, you cannot just watch them go. I'm a parent. If I have to intervene, I have to intervene. I may not want to do it. It may be ugly. I may not know the right thing to do. The thing I might be contemplating might do more harm than good. You still have to take your shot if you fear the one who drives out all fear. You have to take your shot. Third, if I find I'm not taking any risks, I mean, just look at your life. Look at our lives. Are we taking any shots? Or are we great at wise security? Where in your life are you taking a shot? Especially for something you really believe is of God. Fourth, when you know that if you didn't do it, you would be damaging your conscience. Our small group, we, we passed around um, stuff this week for us all to write letters um, to our State Department, to the, um, the UN seat for Iran, and to fill out a petition on behalf of a pastor named Yusef Nadarkhani, who is um, in Iran. They've, they've issued an execution notice for him. He could be killed at any moment. And an enormous amount of pressure needs to go to our State Department and put on that nation to try to save his life. And I just believed I had to, I had to take the time to do that. He's 32 with two kids, and he's going to be killed because he taught his kids Christianity. That was the, the proselytizing apostasy, that he taught his own children to believe in Jesus. He's just a couple years from my age. He's pastoring. It's just, the, it's just providence that I would be here and he would be there. I, my conscience said, you have to do this. You take, take the time. Do what needs to be done and do this. And so we, we passed down our small group and Lex and I, we sent our letters, we signed the petition, we did what was in our hands to do. And fifth is when your neighbor is in immediate dire need. When your neighbor is in immediate dire need, it's not about you. It's about God. It's time to take your shot. Help them. They matter. There's this place in Mark 10 where the apostles say to Jesus, we've left everything for you. Basically, we've bet everything on you. We've risked everything on you. And Jesus does not say, well, you know, this is one of the things where you and I are different. Because me knowing everything, I don't take risks by definition because I know what's going to happen. But you are human. You're going to have to take risks. So we're going to be different on this, but I'll be supportive, I promise. That's not what he says. He what Jesus says basically to these people is, because of his death, 
because he laid down his ability to win through direct means. He made it so that he turned to his apostles and he basically said to them, you guys aren't risking anything. You think you're risking something because your faith is weak. But if you really believed, if you really believed, you'd realize you don't really have the capacity to risk anything because God rewards faith. He loves to reward faith. So how could you risk anything? If you simply do what courage dictates, God not only blesses in this life, but he blesses infinitely in the next because he loves to bless faith. He loves to support courage, he, and he loves to bless what happens. And so therefore, he, he turns to me and says, you guys think you're risking something? You're not risking anything. You're not risking anything. To the extent to which your faith is weak, you feel that way. I understand that. But he says, listen, you're actually not in a different position than me. You're in the exact same position as me because God will not let you fail. He will not let you die ultimately. And he is the one who, after you die, doesn't just have hell to punish. He has heaven to give. And he promises it unblushingly to us. And it is the spoils of the victory of courage that comes from faith that starts with the fear that drives out all fear. <clears throat> because confidence cannot save you. It will not deliver you. It will not change you. It will not drive you to take the risk that God would have you take. Only courage can do that. And that only really comes from a place where nobody can even kill you anymore to control you.